Gresham College presents Popular and Unpopular Science by Professor Sir George Porter. Mr. Vermont, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your kind introduction. Uh, it's a great honor to be invited to give this special Graham lecture, although somewhat daunting, having just heard a list of some of my predecessors distinguished predecessors who've uh, presented it in the past. I welcome the invitation particularly as president of the Royal Society uh, because, uh, as Mr. Vermont has explained, uh, the Royal Society owes a great deal, owed a great deal to Gresham College in its formative years. Gresham College itself was founded in 1597 with the object of fulfilling the dream of Sir Thomas Gresham of a permanent academic base in the city of London. Uh, when Cambridge heard of this scheme and the large endowment which went with it, they tried to persuade him as a Cambridge man to divert it to Cambridge, but he uh, turned a deaf ear to that. And after his wife died, the house uh, which was to become the college passed to the city corporation and the Mercer's Company. Seven Gresham professors were appointed, and even after the college itself disappeared, the Gresham professors continued uh, to deliver, to be appointed, and to deliver public lectures in the city. On the other hand, the Royal Society began, as good things often do, in a very small way, informally, with meetings uh, about 1645, of a few inquirers who'd been inspired by the new experimental philosophy of Francis Bacon. Uh, their first few meetings were in taverns around here, the Mitre in Wood Street and the Bullhead in Cheapside, but very soon afterwards at Gresham College uh, nearby in Bishopsgate. They usually met after one of the Gresham professor's lectures, often in his rooms, because the professors, as long as they remained bachelors, were entitled to have rooms in the college. Uh, during the Civil War, activities were divided between London and Oxford, but immediately after the Restoration in 1660, the Society was founded, and shortly afterwards received its charter from Charles II, and adopted the title of the Royal Society of London for Improving Natural Knowledge. Uh, there were some very, very distinguished names associated with the Society in the early days. Robert Boyle, Christopher Wren, who was a president. Really, Christopher Wren was more distinguished as a mathematician and astronomer uh, than as an architect. Not many people know that. Uh, Robert Hooke and the diarists uh, John Evelyn and Samuel Pepys. Samuel Pepys was also a president. It was a very broad-based society, uh, not of professional scientists, but there weren't any professional scientists in those days. Everybody was a scientist because they were all well-educated. The society had its home in Gresham College for half a century, apart from temporary disturbances, minor disturbances like the plague and the Great Fire, but in 1710, the trustees and the Mercer's Company became very anxious about the dilapidated state of the buildings, the cost of repair, 
and had to tell the Royal Society that they could no longer have any room at the college. The president at the time, whom we have heard of, was uh, Isaac Newton, uh, and he guided the society very well. He was president for 24 years, and he guided the society in the purchase of its own house, Crane Court, which was a very difficult task for him because the fellows had become very attached to Gresham College, and most of them didn't want to leave it. And that ended, for two and a half centuries, the close connection between the college and the Royal Society. And I'm happy to say that we are holding discussions at the present time on how the Society and the newly established Gresham College in the Barbican at the present time can work together again, particularly in forming links between the world of science and the City of London, most important at the present time. It's never been important, more important than it is today. Science provides the power and the inspiration for manufacturing industry, and the city provides the financial expertise and backing. They must work together. Well, that's the theory, but it doesn't seem to be working out very well in this country, not as well as it is with some of our competitors. And one asks why it is that although Britain has uh, an unsurpassed record of scientific discovery and invention over most of the last three centuries, and it's still second only to the United States, we are among the developed nations near the bottom of the Manufacturing League. I believe that one of the principal causes of this caused it to happen is that we are in some ways the worst educated country in the developed world. So highly specialized that the majority of our children leave school knowing almost nothing of mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, medicine, and engineering. They know so little when they leave that they can never catch up. They haven't got over the self-perpetuating barrier after which it's almost downhill to continue one's education. And they will remain forever ignorant of the modern world. Well, some may say, why does this matter? It matters because many of them, highly intelligent if narrowly educated, become leaders and opinion formers in parliament, in the media, in the church, in industry, and in the city. Over the last 200 years, pure and applied science have transformed the way in which we live. That's the good news, and it's so obvious I need to say no more about it. The bad news is that the nature of this transformation and the role of science and technology in the modern world are very poorly understood by the majority of people. This is now so serious that it's threatening the advance, not only of science, but civilization and our success as an advanced nation, depending as we do on high technology. The popularization of science is not very popular, especially among scientists. Many scientists associate it with a 
lowering of standards and a loss of rigor. In French, the word for popularization is vulgarisation, and that just about sums it up for some scientists. This attitude is not only quite mistaken in the world today, it's positively dangerous. And quite recently, there has been a change of attitude among scientists who are coming to realize that the public's view of science and scientists is no longer a matter which they can ignore. And the views of scientists alone are no longer sufficient to determine, for example, whether energy is delivered from nuclear power stations or research involving animal experiments is permissible. Furthermore, scientific research is increasingly expensive. And most of it is financed by the taxpayer, who has a right to know how his investment is getting along. And in a country where the general scientific awareness and understanding are at such a low level, it's also likely uh, uh, to have a, 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 any country which is, has this low level is also likely to have a low level of industrial innovation and prosperity. The uh, popular presentation of science is no new thing. It has quite a long history, and it was in great demand uh, by the end of the 18th century when most gentlemen of leisure were as interested in science as they were in literature and the arts. In 1795, in her Letters for Literary Ladies, Maria Edgeworth wrote... Our books of science were full of unintelligible jargon and mystery-veiled pompous ignorance from public contempt. But now, writers must offer their discoveries to the public in distinct terms, which everybody may understand. Technical language will no longer supply the place of knowledge. And it's interesting uh, that, as in uh, the writing of novels... Uh, the ladies were rather active in this. Uh, Mrs. Marseille wrote some excellent little books, uh, Conversations in Chemistry, Conversations in Physiology, and so forth. Uh, Mary Somerville was very active in writing on mathematics and so forth. But although there was and still is today a popular interest in science, there is very little popular understanding. And scientists still seem very remote to most people. Sir John Hill, the past chairman of the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority, tells a story of how he was uh, once traveling on a crowded train and he found himself in a carriage uh, with a party from the local mental hospital. And the nurse was checking the, uh, the, her party and counting them, and she counted them one, two and then she came to Sir John and uh, she said who are you and Sir John drew himself up and said I am chairman of the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority and she looked at him very sympathetically and went on four, five, <laughs> six most of the population are ignorant of science and <clears throat> many of them have that extreme form of ignorance called fear. And it's as well that scientists should recognize this. Science and technology are unpopular almost to the point of hatred 
in some sections of the community. I called this lecture Popular and Unpopular Science, and painful as it may be, I must dwell for a moment on the unpopular side because we must face up to it. We needn't go back further than Dr. Johnson, who said, the truth is that the knowledge of external nature and of the sciences which that knowledge requires or includes is not the great or frequent business of the mind. The romantic poets had mixed opinions of science as well. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was a friend of uh, his fellow poet and chemist, Humphrey Davy, and relished a whiff of laughing gas from time to time, and lectured badly at the Royal Institution, and also had unfilled ambitions to own his own chemistry laboratory. However, in his lecture notes of 1818, he wrote, Poetry is not the proper antithesis to prose, but to science. Poetry is opposed to science and prose to meter. And their friend Wordsworth, who was indebted to Davy for correcting, punctuating, and editing his lyrical ballads, because, as he said, I'm ashamed to say I am no adept at this, could then write also, science appears as what in truth she is, not as our glory and our absolute boast, but as a succedaneum and a prop to our infirmity. The family view of the Coleridge's deteriorated with time. The Honorable Stephen Coleridge, a great nephew of the poet, writing about 1920, wrote, The elevation of science to the supreme place in human affairs and the claims made for it to a dominant position in the education of the young constitute a usurpation that threatens to become intolerable. Science drives full tilt towards the destruction of personal responsibility. It relegates every act of man to the inevitable results of foreordained causes. This is the world into which science seeks to force us, and a dreary world it is. In an evil hour, continuing his quotation, James Watt and George Stevenson between them gave railways and factories to mankind and the horrible results are seen in the ever-increasing vast agglomerations of miserable men and women in mean streets in the squalid centers of industry. In the murky canopy above them, there is never to be seen the blue sky. All the scientists' fault. And of them, he has this to say, the solemnity with which they regard themselves and the exalted titles of laudation they employ when speaking of each other, fill the foolish with amazement and admiration and the ju judicious with mirth. They're illustrious and world famous. They pelt each other with degrees and diplomas. The whole country rings with their mutual hosannas and the fountains of honor play upon them like a fire engine on a conflagration. Henry Rycroft posthumously in 1903, uh, writing in 1903 and published posthumously, said, I hate and fear science because of my conviction that for a long time to come, if not forever, it will be the remorseless enemy of mankind. I see it destroying all simpleness and gentleness of life, 
all the beauty of the world. I see it restoring barbarism under the mask of civilization. I see it darkening men's minds and hardening their hearts. I see it bringing time of vast conflicts, which will pale into insignificance the thousand years of old, and as likely as not, will whelm the laborious advances of mankind in blood-stained chaos. More recently, in 1963, Robert Hutchins, who is a very well-known president and chancellor of the University of Chicago, wrote, I do not know much about science, but I know a lot about scientists. I wish at the outset to repudiate C.P. Snow, who intimates in one of his books that scientists should be trusted with the world because they're little better than other people. C.P. Snow never said anything of the kind, but still, go on. My view, says Robert Hutchins, uh, based on long and painful observation, is that professors are somewhat worse than other people and that scientists are somewhat worse than other professors. C.P. Snow was right about the morality of the man of science within his profession. There have been very few scientific frauds. This is because a man would be a fool to commit a scientific fraud when he can commit frauds every day on his wife, his associates, the president of his university, and the grocer. Scientists are worse than other professors because they have special problems. One of these is that their productive lives often end at 35. A scientist has a limited education. He labors on the topic of his dissertation, wins the Nobel Prize by the time he's 35, and suddenly has nothing to do. He has no alternative but to spend the rest of his life making a nuisance of himself. And in case you think all this is a thing of the past... Let me quote from an article by Peter Simple, The Way of the World in the Daily Telegraph. He was commenting on the remarks made by the Bishop of Durham in his maiden speech to the House of Lords, in which the bishop, rather surprisingly, chose as his subject the importance of training for the new technology by a general insistence on literacy and numeracy. It's clear, said the bishop, that to have the sort of collaboration that's required between the arts, social sciences, applied science, and so on, they must be able to develop in the artist a sense of what it is to be numerate. Peter Simple's response to this was vitriolic. He harked back to the Levis and Snow controversy and said he, the bishop, might have questioned it in the name both of his religion and of truly human life and civilization. He might have asked his fellow peers at least to pause for a moment in their worship of that received wisdom and look about them at the world which is it has made for us and the worst world it's making for our children. So incomprehensible as it may be to those of us who love science and see it as one of the few redeeming features in this rather unhappy world, for some people, science really is unpopular. I think this poor understanding and dislike, and the dislike which follows it, is the, is the result of a culture gap. 
But what has science to do with culture, ask those who know only one culture? They see little connection between the great thoughts of the philosophers and political historians on which our future civil servants and politicians are reared and the mundane matters of heat, light, electricity and stinks, which are to many quite a different matter more associated with plumbing than the higher planes of intellectual, social and artistic life. Charles Snow has been much criticized for what seems to me to have been a statement of an obvious state of affairs. It's 20 years since his Reed lectures, and it may be worth recalling what he said because little has changed in that time. Speaking of what he'd called the two cultures, he said, constantly I felt that I was moving among two groups, comparable in intelligence, identical in race, not grossly different in social origin, earning about the same incomes, who had almost ceased to, com ceased to communicate at all, who in intellectual, moral, and psychological climate had so little in common that instead of going from Burlington House, it's where the Royal Society was in those days, or South Kensington to Chelsea, one might have crossed an ocean. In fact, one had traveled much further than across an ocean, because after a few thousand Atlantic miles, one found Greenwich Village talking precisely the same language as Chelsea, and both having about as much communication with MIT as though the scientists spoke nothing but Tibetan. A good many times, he continues, I've been present, present at gatherings of people who by the standards of a traditional culture are thought highly educated and who have with traditional gusto been expressing their incredulity at the illiteracy of scientists. Once or twice I've been provoked and have asked the company how many of them could describe the second law of thermodynamics. The response was cold. It was also negative. Yet, I was asking something which is about the scientific equivalent of have you read a work of Shakespeare's? I now believe if I'd asked an even simpler question such as what do you mean by mass or acceleration, which is the scientific equivalent of saying can you read, not more than one in ten of the highly educated would have felt that I was speaking the same language. <coughs> the most common ploy of the heart of understanding scientifically speaking, is to begin by denying any knowledge whatever of scientific matters. There are then several alternative ploys which can be followed. First, you can laugh it off, which is much the most effective way of done well, by Bernard Levin, for example, when he says that a semiconductor, he thinks that a semiconductor is a man who asks you to pass halfway down the bus. Or one may boast about it as a normal, ignorant human being, or one may apologize about it. And the latter course of apology may be disastrous. It was illustrated by President Richard Nixon when he was presenting the National Medal of Science in 1971. Referring to the citations accompanying the medals, he said, I have read them, 
and I want you to know that I do not understand them. But I want you to know, too, that because I do not understand them, I realize how enormously important their contributions are to this nation. <laughs> that, to me, is the nature of science to the unsophisticated people. <clears throat> well, we have a long way to go. There's another reaction to science, which is a positive desire for the unknown for mysticism and all the mumbo-jumbo which separates primitive man from civilization. Extrasensory perception, unidentified flying objects, which have to remain unidentified to qualify, of course, and astrology. These are treated in depth and with apparent seriousness by many newspapers, as George Steiner has pointed out, there are more members of astrological societies in the United States of America than all the societies, physics, chemistry, astronomy, put together. During the last century, many of our best scientists became members of the Psychical Research Society and encouraged, encouraged the scientific study of such popular diversions as table-turning and spiritualism. In those days also, those who produced these wonders were called the media. The society's investigations, assisted by such men as Michael Faraday, revealed nothing but fraud and deception. That is why there is very little investigation of these things today. Scientists are bored to tears with the whole thing and know uh, that uh, they're not going to... Uh, get any very interesting results. If somebody presents them with a new phenomenon which uh, they can reproduce, then of course this is the stuff of success, theses, papers, and honors. But they would have to prove it first. I spent the last 20 years as director of the Royal Institution where Michael Faraday and his mentor Humphrey Davy were two of the first popularized science, especially for children. They were real pop stars. Uh, Humphrey Davy was one of the most popular attractions in London at that time. When he was ill, bulletins had to be pasted on the door to say how he was getting along. And it's said that Albemarle Street in London became the first one-way street because uh, of the crowds who came to the lectures and the horses had to set their heads facing Grafton Street. Many of Faraday's remarks remind us how little has changed in, rela in the relations between science and government. You probably know the well-known answer he gave to Robert Peel, the Prime Minister, when the Prime Minister asked him that tiresome question, which is still asked ad nauseum today, what is the use of your work? And Faraday replied, I know not, sir, but one day I'll warrant you'll tax it. <laughs> and, and he was absolutely right, and of course they did. Faraday, for the poor public understanding of science, blamed the educational system. Giving evidence to the Public Schools Commission in 1862, he said, the sciences make up life. The highly educated man fails to understand the simplest things of science 
and has no particular aptitude for grasping them. I find the grown-up mind coming back to me with the same questions over and over again. Everything in these things must depend on the spirit and manner in which the instruction itself is conveyed and honored. If you teach scientific knowledge without honoring scientific knowledge as it is applied, you do more harm than good. Persons who've had the discipline of classical instruction, persons who've been educated by the present system, are ignorant of their ignorance at the end of all that education. That happens with men who are excellent mathematicians. Until they know what are the laws of nature, and, and until they're taught by education what are the natural facts, they can't clear their minds of absurd inconsistencies. I've had occasion to go over to, to France with a deputy board and to look at their lighthouses. And we find intelligent men there whom we can't get here. In regard to the electric light, which you may have heard of, I've had to displace keeper after keeper for the purpose of getting those who could attend to it intelligently. It sounds like today. I trace everything to the ignorance of the learned in literature as well as the unlearned and their want of judgment in natural things where often there's a fine intellect in other things. Who are the men whose powers are really developed? Who are they who made the electric telegraph, the steam engine, and the railroad? Are they the men who taught, were, have been taught only Latin and Greek? The last direct, great director of the Royal Institution uh, was my immediate predecessor, Sir Lawrence Bragg, and he was one of the first to put the blame for all this on the scientists themselves. He said, the importance of science in everyday life is often stressed. The influence of advances in scientific knowledge on the achievements of engineering and technology has altered the way in which we live and continues to do so with bewildering rapidity. At the same time, it's also stressed that man in the street has little conception of what science is and how it advances. Scientists are often the loudest in proclaiming this popular ignorance, especially when they want to get money to support their schemes. Yet scientists themselves are largely to blame for this state of affairs. They're often singularly inept at explaining to non-scientists what they're doing. Further, they're apt to regard colleagues who give popular talks as actors aiming at popular applause, who cheapen science by oversimplification and spoil the dignity of its aloofness. I'm quite out of sympathy with my fellow scientists when they adopt this attitude. I believe that it's our duty, in return for the support we are given, to render an account of our stewardship, which is readily understandable by our fellow men who are intelligent and shrewd, although they may not be familiar with all our technical terms. On science and industry, Bragg had this to say, industrialists often say that fundamental research is attracting too many of the best men, stressing quite rightly that the life of the country depends on that high technical level of our industries. As I have heard it put, the worst brain drain in this country is to the universities. I think the answer, however, is not to blame the universities for making poor, pure science too attractive, is to increase the attractiveness of a scientific career in industry. Is there not perhaps still too great a gap between management on the one hand and research and development on the other? 
A director must know enough about science to know what kind of questions scientists can answer. If this is not so, the scientist can't be inspired to give his best. Sir Lawrence, of course, received countless honors, and one of the most unusual ones towards his life was to have a crater on the moon named after him. And Lady Bragg, hearing about this, uh, talking to me, said, I, I think that's very nice for Willie, as long as he doesn't have to go and open it. <laughs> when Sir Joseph Banks, uh, who was pre the longest president, serving president of the Royal Society for 42 years, learned of the popularization of science by Davy that I referred to, he wrote to Rumford, the royal institution is now in the hands of the profane. But the Royal Society and the Royal Society of London has not really in the past been noted for its pop image. But recently it decided that matters were serious and as the leading scientific body of the country, it should look into the problem. It formed a group, a study group, under the chairmanship of uh, Sir Walter Bodmer uh, to review the public understanding of science in the United Kingdom. And in its recommendations, the report of that committee, the Bodmer Report, uh, mentioned a number of contributing problems. Changes in our formal education system were desperately needed to teach a broad course of science, technology, and the arts and humanities to all children right up to the end of school. This, for, I'm glad to say, the government uh, are agreeing with and are beginning to implement. Secondly, the report uh, stressed the importance of the mass media, of course. And thirdly, the point that Bragg was making, that it is up to scientists themselves to come out and play a greater part in the uh, public understanding of science. In France, where um, most scientists are civil servants, this duty is now written into their contract of employment. They have a duty to announce and explain to the public what they're doing. This report is uh, important, and one of the uh, recommendations and consequences of <coughs> the Bodmer report uh, was that a joint committee, sh that a committee should be set up to study these problems, and it has been set up. It's a joint committee uh, on the public understanding of science called COPUS, a joint committee of the Royal Society, the Royal Institution, and the British Association, and the committee has representatives of science and industry, government, media, and already it's taken quite a number of initiatives. It's instituted a Faraday Award for the practicing scientists, which has done most to promote, who has done most to promote public understanding. We have a media fellowship scheme for seconding scientists for short periods to work in the offices of press and television. Uh, we ha have just uh, instituted a science book prize uh, two prizes, one for children and one for adults. Uh, competition for the best scientific and technological films and TV programs, a big sort of Oscar presentation which will be televised in the autumn called SciTech, televised in Bristol. And we have uh, working parties looking into science museums, exploratories, and a number of other schemes of this kind. 
I must mention one area of misunderstanding that's particularly relevant uh, to the city. We're constantly told that we're good at science in this country, but bad at exploitation. And scientists are continually harangued by government and industry until they're doing the wrong research. It's becoming increasingly difficult to get adequate funding for good basic research unless you can prove that there's an economic payoff within about 18 months. Committees are being set up to decide for scientists <coughs> what science is about and what these scientists should be doing, so-called exploring the exploitable areas of science. <coughs> but our failure can hardly be attributed uh, to too much science or that, uh, or, or that our science is too good. It's my belief that innovation in science can only occur from the bottom up, not from committees, and that the practicing scientist knows best what is timely and promising in basic research. But it's also my belief that the scientist is usually totally ignorant of market forces and needs, and that industry knows best in the city what is best and what is worth exploiting at any given time. Of course, there must be the closest cooperation between uh, science and industry, but it's a m mistake to think that scientists in their ivory towers have no interest in the exploitation of their results. There's nothing gives them greater pleasure than to find that their work is being exploited and is useful, especially if they're paid a modest uh, consultant fee. They're absolutely delighted. It can be said that there are really only two kinds of research, applied research and research which is not yet applied. But necessary as it is to their long-term prosperity, individual industries in hot competition with each other can't be expected to fund basic research which may have no payoff within the lifetime of the present board of directors. Just as uh, cabinet ministers and uh, politicians don't have very much interest in uh, bills which are not going to show some popular appeal before the next election. Therefore, basic research must be done in the universities and research institutes, and it must be funded mainly by the taxpayer. On the other hand, short-term research and development is best carried out by industry and must be funded by them, and they know best what is exploitable. And this is where our country fails, compared with Japan and our other strongest industrial competitors. Japan, the Japanese government, spends far less on fundamental research than we do, but industry spends far, far more. Means must be found to encourage more of it, and the city could help here, not only by providing finance, but by encouraging companies to declare in their annual reports their spending on research and development and giving them some credit for doing so. There are limits, of course, uh, returning to the duties of the scientist, to what can be expected of anyone, and it's not necessary nor desirable for all scientists to take part in the task of the popularization of science. Some are not good at it, and others are too busy with their own scientific work. 
Discovery and originality in science demand complete dedication, at least during the critical period of time when the mind is engaged on the problem. And the advancement of knowledge is at least as important as imparting that knowledge to others. But they must be sympathetic with those scientists and those people in the media who do try to uh, uh, explain even their own work. And they must uh, encourage the professional communicators to do so without embellishment or exaggeration. The communicator must be fair by presenting the good news as well as the bad. Let me take an example from my own subject, chemistry. When did you last hear any good news about chemistry? From the media. Naturally, and quite rightly, we heard about the dreadful disaster in Bhopal, which killed 2,500 people, probably the, the worst man-made disaster that's ever occurred in peacetime. Worse still, the plant in Bhopal was making chemical intermediates for insecticides, which are notorious polluters and destroyers of life. So all the news about chemistry was bad. But look a little deeper into the purpose of Bhopal. Perhaps the most successful of man's achievements over the last two or three decades in any field has been the increased availability of food so that starvation is no longer necessary. The Green Revolution did exactly what the King of Brobding, Nag of Gulliver's Travels, had asked for and made two ears of corn or two blades of grass grow where only one grew before. And those who brought it about, according to the king, would deserve better of mankind and do a more essential service for the country than a whole race of politicians put together. This was a proud achievement of chemistry, depending heavily on fertilizers and new insecticides, plant growth substances and the like. Since the war, the improvement of food productivity has been dramatic. Since 1964, worldwide production of wheat and food grains has doubled and kept ahead of population growth. In the EEC, wheat production has doubled in seven years. In Britain, the same area lands, uh, yields twice as much wheat or potatoes. The cow gives twice as much milk on less land. And it's the same story around the world in those countries which used to be held up as unable to feed themselves. China is now expected to produce the largest wheat crop in the world and is in the export food business. India is effectively self-sufficient. Pakistan, Brazil, Argentina uh, are already exporting food or will shortly be doing so. The world is awash with surplus food. Of course, there are distribution difficulties, but we produce more than we can eat uh, if properly shared. How did mankind welcome these achievements? Did everybody thank the chemist and congratulate him on what had been done for the benefit of mankind? Well, not really. A decade or two ago, a period of depression began about science and technology as a whole. The post-industrial revolution was discovered. People like Rachel Carson and Alvin Toffler and Theodore Rozak and the Club of Rome and many others questioned not only some genuinely worrying aspects of chemical pollution, but often the whole ethic of modern technology. Quite quickly, the idea of better living through chemistry 
promoted by the DuPont Company and generally accepted, was transformed into an association of chemistry in the public mind with pollution and the iniquities of multinational corporations. Many of the essentials to the Green Revolution, such as insecticides, became, in the layman's mind, destroyers of life. <clears throat> but high crop yields depend on those pesticides and weed killers as much as on fertilizers, because food plants have to compete with weeds and pests and viruses. Without them, as Max Perutz has pointed out, the production of grain would fall by nearly a half in three years, and we would have a famine of catastrophic proportions like the Irish potato famine, which was also caused by a fungal infection. The memory of how the people of the world suffered without science is soon lost, and the young people today never knew it. They see only the remaining problems and human errors, some of which we can solve and prevent, but some of which we shall always have to live with. It's ethically no more justified to take life by intentionally doing nothing uh, than by some positive action which intentionally causes death. On the economic front, too, it needs to be more generally known that the chemical industry of this country contributes more to the balance of payments than the whole of the rest of manufacturing industry put together. But a public which has become accustomed to scientific answers in black and white isn't prepared to discuss technological risks in various shades of gray. But somehow the message must be got over because in a democracy the people decide and an uninformed decision may sentence millions to starvation. The scientists and the media must understand that their purpose and their professions are very different they must try to work better together in spite of this to inform the public. Einstein once said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. And it's, the media must not mistake superficiality for popularization. Just having more science isn't enough. Indeed, I've seen lectures which probably put the audience off science. Enrico Fermi once stood up after a lecture and pronounced, before I came here, I was confused about this subject. I'm still confused, but on a higher level. <laughs> the real permanent solution must lie with the educators in our schools. Children are born scientists. They have to be. If they're to grow up and become independent, they have to learn partly from their parents, but mainly by experiment, about the natural world about them. If they don't learn about the laws of gravity, they won't learn how to stand up. And the laws of motion, they won't learn how to walk. And if they don't learn about the viscosity of liquids, uh, they won't be able to feed themselves. They'll slobber. A small baby, given a woolly toy, will investigate it with the, investigate it with the limited techniques at his disposal. He'll probably chew it and smell it and throw it and squash it, and so begin his learning of chemistry and the laws of motion and the properties of materials. And before long, this ch the young child will be doing experiments not for reward, 
not even to gain a practical objective, but out of natural inquisitiveness. And young people continue their interest in science for several years, frequently asking philosophical questions which have no immediate application and which their parents can't answer. Don't ask such silly questions. And so comes the great divide. A small proportion do continue to ask these questions all their lives, whilst a much larger number give up all interest, or is it hope, in further inquiry or understanding of the natural world and themselves. These are not necessarily less intelligent. Many will be successful in other ways. Many will lead us as politicians, opinion makers in the media, and teachers. There are talented and dedicated teachers. They're of an enormous importance and far too few of them. I remember my uh, first teachers at the age of 10 or 11 by name. I remember almost everything they said in the first lessons. My, perhaps the greatest genius of all was my mathematics teacher, uh, Mr. Tomkis, and I remember how he taught algebra. I remember how he taught geometry one particular point that he made about algebra was that if you multiply one side of an equation by two, you must multiply the other side of the equation by two. And if some miserable boy didn't do that, he would say, come out, take off your slipper, bend over, what you do to one side, you always do to the other. <laughs> And the point still clings <laughs> to me. Science is growing rapidly, and we must all grow up with it. Above all, we must help people to understand not so much the facts of science, but what it's about. Science can and does make our lives more comfortable rem by removing causes of unhappiness, like, like hunger and disease. It can't make us, guarantee to make us happy, but it can certainly relieve much unhappiness. But this isn't, removing hunger and disease isn't its only or even its main purpose. We need to tell of science as a great odyssey, a search for truth and understanding of ourselves and our universe. Those wonderful words of Vannevar Bush, science is a simple faith which transcends utility. Nearly all men of science have it, all men of learning for that matter, and men of simple ways too. It is the faith that it's the privilege of man to understand and that this is his mission. Why does the shepherd at night ponder the stars? Not so that he can better tend his sheep, Knowledge for the sake of understanding, not merely to prevail. That's the essence of our being. None can define its limits or set its ultimate boundaries. In the words of Tolstoy, the world has but one science, the science of the whole, the science explaining the creation and man's place in it.
For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.